Welcome to the Days Gone By podcast. My name is Jameson Stewart. In today's episode of the Days Gone By podcast, we have a sermon about the church. Why the church? By Tom Holland, preached by Tom Holland at the West Hob Street Church of Christ in 2008. His sermon about the church is one that will certainly benefit and bless your life. I need to appropriate the language of the Apostle Peter, who on one occasion said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. I can say that today to all of you. It's good for me to be here. I'm honored to be here. I rejoice to be here. So many of you I've known for a long, long time. You're a vital part of my life. I have some kinfolk that are members of this congregation for which I'm very grateful. I will always hold the Hobbs Street Church of Christ close to my heart for four or five reasons. One reason is because this congregation and the late brother Winford Clark, God bless his memory, gave me hope at a time in my life when there was none. I'll never, ever forget that. I am glad to be here because I believe we're partners in the work in Guyana. I listened to Brent's report down at Amridge Lectures, thrilled at that. I thrill, I read the bulletin and, and Bill's reports about the work in Guyana. Now we're working in western Guyana uh, over near, well actually just a river separating us from Brazil. But the Lord has poured out his blessings on that work since uh, 2005, for which we're very grateful. I had always wanted to give a part of my life to mission work. Uh, I didn't have the idea I wanted to try to learn another language. I'd been through that ordeal in graduate school, and I heard Jerry Davidson give a report on Guyana and said, uh, you know, they speak English down there. And, and they do speak a form of English. The British have corrupted it, but they, they do speak a form of English. And they tell me they understand me well, and I have to really listen when they shift into that uh, modified English to really understand them. But we're partners in that work, and, and I, I'm grateful to God that we are. And I am grateful to be here because I appreciate Bill Irby and Ginger and what they mean to the cause that I love, what they mean to the church, not just in Limestone County, but in a lot of other places. And I am so happy and grateful to God that they're working with this congregation. Many of you, as I mentioned, have been special folks in my life. There's a lady here today that made my day when she walked in, Cleo Flanagan, right back there. She was my teacher back uh, at Ox. I am a graduate of Oxford, by the way. Does that impress you? It was our little elementary school across the river. And if you don't think I grew up in an optimistic community, that should prove it. And that lady, uh, she touched my life with kindness at a time I needed it. And I'll never forget her. Love her dearly. There'll be other things that I'll mention as we go along, but I, I got to get right into this lesson. Do you have anybody praying for you? I guess we all do. I I think that's one of the great blessings of my life, to have people that pray for me every day. 
Well, I want to tell you about a man that prayed for this church. It happened a long, long time ago. It happened back in the first century, actually. You say, you cannot be serious. I'm very serious. When Paul recorded one of his prayers in Ephesians chapter 1, that was not just for that church in Ephesus. It's for the Lord's church for all time. And he is praying, if you look at verse 18 to begin, that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened. I love the vivid imagery of that. The eyes of your understanding might be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but in that which is to come and put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all. See, he's praying that you and I will have an insight into the relationship that we have with God's power. I mean, all of us who are God's people have been influenced by his power, and God willing will emphasize that more in the lesson this evening. But he wants us to understand also that there is such a thing as a true church. And it's the one that Jesus promised to build and the one for which he died, that it might be a living organism, a living reality. And he is praying that you and I will have an appreciation for that church of which Jesus serves as head. He's the one that is in control. But I'm raising the question for us to consider for a few moments why is that church so important? Why is it important in light of what's happening in America right now, religiously? Why is it important in view of the individual personal nature of salvation and Christianity? And then after that, we'll just let the Lord, the Lord in his word explain to us why it is important. And I will promise you something. If we all will just open our hearts and minds to the Word of God here in the great book of Ephesians, we'll love the Lord's church more. We'll be more devoted to serving the Lord in His church. It'll mean that we'll pray about it, we'll work for it, we'll do everything that we can to build it up to the glory of God. But we need to start by just understanding as best we can what's happening in the world all about us. Now, I, I mentioned in the Bible class that I saw a sad sight up street as I drove in, people out playing ball that I wish had been in the Bible class somewhere. But I saw a beautiful sight right here this morning. All of those young men up here helping us with a memorial to our Lord Jesus Christ. And young men, I tell you, you are a compliment to your parents, you are a compliment to your grandparents, and you are a compliment to your Savior. That was a beautiful sight I saw. Now, what is happening to religion in America? I'm not going to give you an opinion. I want to read to you a statement from a 
noted columnist by the name of George Will, who wrote this May the 5th, 2005. According to the American Religious Identif Identification Survey, Americans who answer none when asked to identify their religion numbered 29.4 million in 2001, more than double the 14.3 million in 1990. If unbelievers had their own state, the state of none, its population would be more than twice the size of New England's six states and none would be the nation's second largest state. California, 34.5 million, none, 29.4 million, Texas, 21.3 million. Studies indicate that 49% of the American people claim that they are affiliated with some religious organization, church, mosque, synagogue. Now, if they still teach math like they used to, that means over Half of the people who, who really identify with uh, religion, and, and I'm not thinking here about the Lord's Church specifically, it's an alarming number when, we, when you really stop and think about it. Here's an article that appeared in World Magazine October the 29th, 2005 by Joel Belts in which he says, Get ready, America for a tidal wave of church closings. He says, get ready for the huge collapse from within that is soon to result in the locking of hundreds and then thousands of church doors across our country, all from the inside. You say, that, that must be an alarmist view. Could be. But I think of the area where I am working now, up in Marshall County, Tennessee, and that, and, and over in Lincoln County, the churches where I've been holding meetings for 56, seven years, many of them just barely holding on. And, and two or three of them, I, I'm concerned what's going to happen when two or three people succumb to death. What, what will happen to those congregations? Those are just some that I know personally about there are many other congregations. And, and you think about denominationalism, it's in serious trouble. You see it in their effort to try to draw crowds through entertainment. You see it in the proliferation of so-called community churches. Now granted, some of those community churches use community church as a facade. If you look behind, it's still the same old denominational doctrine that's being taught, but a lot of them are, are people who pulled out of mainline denominations and they've started their own church and they call it Fellowship Community Church or, or what have you, whatever name they select to be the nomenclature to identify them. George Barnard did a book in 2005 and, and I found this book in a unique place. I was reading an article in U.S. News and World Report why so many young people are turning away from the mega churches. And they mentioned this book by George Barnum called Revolution. And I rushed down to Barnes Noble and got my copy and read that thing that night. And he says in that book on page, uh, well, I think it's page 34, he says that right now there is a growing subnation of people already well over 20 million who are called revolutionaries. They have turned away from what they would call uh, organized religion. 
over 20 million in the United States. Okay, now, here's the question. Why the church, when so many people seemingly are turning away from religion generally? Now, with that in mind, here's the second thing. Won't we all agree that salvation and living the Christian life is a very personal, individual undertaking? Let's go back to the question. What must I do to be saved? Now, I have no idea in 58 years how many times I've preached on that subject, always pointing out that it's a, it has two basic parts, that what must I do is my part to be saved is God's part. My salvation is dependent upon God, but there are certain things he tells me I must do in order for him to save me. But it's what must I do? And how many times have preachers said it's not what your parents must do, it's not what your grandparents must do, it's not what your, it's what you must do. It's, it, it's personal, it's individual. Can you be saved for someone else? I promise you. If I could be saved for somebody else, I can start naming you some people. I would have already been saved for those folks. There's a man in Tennessee that I love dearly. He loves me. That man is a friend, and I have done everything I know to do, and I have prayed and prayed to God for him that he'll obey the gospel. I tell you, if I could be saved for him, that would have happened a long time ago. That can't be done. It's personal, right? What must I do? Now let's think about living the Christian life. If you could live the Christian life for someone else, can you think of someone for whom you would gladly live it? Couldn't we all? Would you say, have you forgotten Philippians 2.12? Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now we can encourage one another. We can exhort each other. But when it comes to my own personal salvation, you can't live it for me. I, I cannot live it for you. Exhorting, encouraging, teaching, yes. But personal choice, definitely. Okay, now let's think about worship. Who worships for you? Do we worship by proxy or by participation? You know the answer to that. I'll just remind you there's not a person on earth that can eat the Lord's Supper for you. You examine yourself, and so eat that bread and drink that cup. There is no one that can do your singing for you. I, I'm fully aware that there are folks who have the idea that people can do their singing for them, but it cannot really be done. I mean, we individually are to sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And that's another thing I love about this church. I love your singing, and uh, it, it thrills my soul. And I'm honored that when I open the songbook, I see that song, God Let Me Do, There Is a Land, listed in that book. That, that's a great joy to my life and a great honor. But you can't do my singing for me. I, I can't do your singing for you. It's individual. It, it's participation. That's the nature of worship. Okay, now let's think about judgment. In the day of judgment, how will the Lord do it? Well, he say, now, all of you people who were members of the Hobbs Street Church of Christ in Athens, Alabama, come up before my judgment seat because congregationally I'm about to judge you. You say, that's not the way it's going to happen. And you're right. 
It's written, 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may give an account for the deeds done in the body according that he has done. And he is used generically there, he or she. We personally shall give account in judgment to the Lord. I won't have to give account for you. You won't have to give account for me. And thanks be to God in heaven, the Lord will be the judge. I wouldn't trust the Supreme Court of this land to render a judgment where I would go to spend eternity. Would you? I would not judge the, I would not trust the Alabama Supreme Court to judge my eternal destiny. Would you? And I'll tell you something else. I wouldn't trust my brethren to determine my eternal destiny. Because if I did, some of them have already made the decision a long time ago. But they're not going to judge me in the life. They can judge me in this life, but they won't judge me in the last great day, the Lord. And I trust him. He's going to judge me. But see, it'll be personal. It'll be individual. Now, you, you see the point, I know. If being saved is so personal, no one can be saved for me. If living the Christian life is so personal, no one can live it for me. If worship demands my own participation, and if judgment is going to be personal and individual, why the church? Why didn't the Lord say, okay, you folks go out there and live the Christian life for me? Why did he say, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together? Why does he want us to come together? Why does he want us to worship together? Well, I, I'm fully aware that there are some folks that have the idea that you can get just as... I, I've had be, people say to me, I believe you can get just as close to God out on the bank of a creek on Sunday morning as you can in church, as they would say. I don't believe a word of that. That's just not so. That's, that's a rationalization from beginning to end. Now, occasionally I like to get out on a creek bank. I, I'll honestly tell you that. The one thing that I do for recreation is fish. I love to do that. Don't get to do it much, but I've been out there on the creek bank. Now you can pray out there and you can do a lot of other things, but I'll tell you, fish don't sing with you. Never have had fish sing with me. And um, I, like, I like my brethren to sing with me. And uh, I've never partaken of the Lord's Supper with fish. Do that with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I'm telling you, God had a reason for the church, and it was so important to him that it was in his eternal purpose. See, the church revealed in the New Testament, and you read about it over 100 times, what, 114 times? The church revealed in the New Testament didn't come out of the imagination of people. It didn't result from noted religious leaders convening around a long table and somebody saying, what would be a good arrangement for religious folks? And some fellow said, how about church? And they all said, not a bad idea. That's not how it happened. The church revealed in the New Testament came out of God's own mind and purpose. So it's written, Ephesians chapter 3, 10, 11, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed. The eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So I'm going to submit to you there are solid biblical reasons here in this great book of Ephesians, the greatest treatise ever written on the subject of the church, why you and I should take the church very seriously. One reason is because we here in the church connect to God's promise that came out of God's purpose. Now let's go to Ephesians 3 when Paul, after talking in chapter 2 about the great contrast between those who were dead in trespasses and sins and those who had been made alive in Jesus Christ and who constituted God's holy temple on this earth. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, he said, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote a foreign few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of his promise, partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. See, God had a great purpose for us, and he made a promise a promise that you could trace all the way back to the days of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, when God said, In thy seed all families of the earth would be blessed. That's a promise. And you and I can be a participant in that promise. When Peter, on that memorable day of Pentecost, was preaching to his Jewish brethren from so many different nations, he said, The promise is unto you. God's promise is unto you and to your children and all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. When the Apostle Paul preached his first recorded sermon up in Antioch, up a city, two times in that great sermon, he talked about God's promise. And now you and I can be a part of that very promise that God initially made to Abraham. In thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. And the blessing comes when you and I become the people of God. We are identified as the children of God and we share in that promise. Now I beg you, just try to catch a little glimpse of getting involved in something that trace, could be traced all the way back to the days of Abraham. Getting involved in something that came out of the great mind of Almighty God. Getting involved in a promise as sure as God's eternal throne. You talk about honor. You talk about privilege. You talk about potential joy. It's all in this promise. And where do we realize the promise? Jews and Gentiles in one body partaking of the promise. How do you like that one? Okay, here's another reason. So we can glorify God, really glorify God. Now we go back to the latter part of Ephesians chapter 3 in the last two verses. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory, watch this one now, in the church. Now I think you've misread that preacher. Unto him be glory on the golf course. Unto him be glory on the creek bank. Unto him be glory at Wally World. Unto him be glory on the ball diamond. No, I didn't misread it. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus 
throughout all ages, world without end. Amen, he wrote. I tell you, when, when I read through this book of Ephesians, I start out by reading that listing of promises, great spiritual blessings that I have in Jesus Christ. And, oh, he, he starts out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and then starts listing those blessings, and finally gets down to say, It's under the praise of the glory of His grace. I tell you one thing we do in the Lord's church, we praise God's grace. How many times have you sung it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Praising God's grace, preaching about God's grace, because it was God's kindness and His grace that sent His Son from heaven to die for us on the cross. It's by God's grace that we can become the people of God. And you keep on reading here in Ephesians 1, and he talks about, to the praise of his glory. What a privilege we as human beings have on this earth of praising the glory of Almighty God. How many times have you sung glory to his name? You know, down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. How many times have you sung? To God be the glory. To the praise of his glory. And that's what we do in the church. We praise the grace of God. We praise the glory of God. We praise God. That's a good reason for the church right there, don't you think? Now I'll give you another one. Going back to what we read in the latter part of Ephesians 1, God put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his what? His body. You and I have the opportunity, the honor, and the privilege, and the joy of so connecting to Jesus Christ that we become so vital to him, so vital to his mission, so vital to what he's about, that we're his body. I'm going to ask you this question. I know the answer. It's kind of a rhetorical question, really. Is your body important to you? You say, oh, no, my, my body's not. I don't ever go to the doctor, you know, when I, my body is not functioning right. I don't go to the doctor. And, you know, there are times I just beat myself up. I just, have you ever beaten yourself? I do an on online course for Ambridge University, a graduate course in homiletics. And, it's the last thing I need right now is, is something else to do. And so the last time I got it off my back up in early spring, I told the folks down at Riggs one Wednesday night, I said, I've got a little place down on Duck River, not too far from here. I'm going down there one day when I get all these papers graded, all these term papers read, and all those grades turned in. I'm going down to my little place where nobody can see me, and I'm going to whoop myself all over that place for taking on this assignment. But they knew I was being facetious. Man, I, I want to take care of my body. My body's important to me. That's why I do my exercising. That's why I take my vitamins. I want this body to serve the Lord as long as it will. Now, you think a lot of your body, too. Well, how do you think Christ feels about his body? He thinks a lot of it. 
He really, really does. And when you had that fellow out that was hurting the body of Christ, trying to destroy his church, you know, Saul of Tarsus, and when the Lord appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road, you remember what the Lord said to him? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He could have said, Lord, I haven't laid a hand on you. I haven't touched you. You're in heaven by the right hand of God. There's no way I can even get up there. I won't tell you something, Saul. Every time you put the whip to the back of one of my people, you were hurting my body. I won't tell you something, man. Every time you threw one of my people in jail, you were hurting my body. Every time you compelled them to blaspheme, every time you had them put to death, you were hurting my body. My body is important to me. Well, what is the Lord's body? His church. And you and I can be a part of that. Now, sometimes I think about that, and it just kind of overwhelms me. You mean a cotton-headed boy from an Alabama cotton patch can be important to the Lord? I tell you, if you're part of his body, you are important to it. Well, see, I, I don't have a lot of this world's good. So be it. I'm not politically prominent, okay? I'm not socially outstanding. I don't have a lot of formal education. I'm a widow trying to survive on Social Security. I'm a fellow who had worked hard to have a retirement and a bunch of thugs stole a lot of it. A bunch of robbers up in New York. They did it in a sophisticated way, not with guns. But they did it. Now, I can't get on that subject. That's I lost too much two or three weeks ago in my retirement that I worked hard. I, I was working three jobs to lay a little of that back. But be that as it may, I tell you that the body of Christ is important to him. And if you were part of it, whoever you are, you're important to the Lord. Why the church to be a part of something that will live and something that is a positive force for good in this world. That's a good reason, isn't it? I'll give you one more. Why be a part of the body of Christ? To be saved? See, you have to be saved to get into it. And if you want to be eternally saved, you stay with it. You stay in it. And I turn over with you to Ephesians 5 after Paul had said uh, in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. See that? He gave himself for it. I thought Jesus died for everybody, didn't you? Is it not written in the word of God, Hebrews 2, 9, He but the grace of God tasted death for every man? So it is. Well, why would the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write that the Lord loved the church? He loved it. Because technically, only the people who are connected to Christ in his body are actually benefited by his blood. You contact the blood to get into the body. You stay in contact with the blood by staying in the body, walking in the light, 1 John 1 and 7. 
keeping Jesus in heaven as your advocate, 1 John 2, 1 and 2, keeping the Lord in heaven as your high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us, and therefore, according to Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save completely or to the uttermost those who come to God by him. No wonder we would sing as Brent led us, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I'm expecting my Lord to get me into heaven. That's, that's why he came to earth, right? Hebrews 2.9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. See that? Jesus came from glory to take us to glory. But he takes us to glory when we are connected to him. And when we are connected to him, we're in his body. And his body is the church, the Bible says. Why the church? Oh, man. So we can connect to the Son of God and go to heaven. Why the church? So we can claim as the best folks on earth, brothers and sisters in Christ. I didn't say perfect people. The best people. I wouldn't swap the relationship I have with God's people or any other folks in the world. Wouldn't dare do that. We are blessed to be a part of something that came out of the mind of Almighty God. We are privileged to correlate our lives with Jesus Christ in His body, the church. And we have an opportunity to taste eternal salvation when we are in that saved relationship for which Jesus died on the cross. Are you in that body? Now, men build churches, men and women build churches, and uh, they talk about joining their church. That's their privilege. But you know, the church that you read about in the New Testament, it takes an act of God to get into that one. It really does. You have to begin by letting the Lord save you. You start there by trusting Him with your soul, trusting Him totally and completely. Faith is more than an intellectual ascent. It's a trust. And so when Jesus says, repent, you trust it, and you change your mind about your former life and the one you shall live in the future. And when he says, confess me, I confess you, you do that. You, you sweeten your lips with the loving name of the Son of God. When he says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, you trust that. That's why you're baptized, for the Lord to become your Savior. And in that process, God then takes over and he adds you to the church. Now, isn't that beautifully simple and simply beautiful? Not some kind of big ordeal, you know. You just let the Lord be your Savior, and God takes over and adds you to the body of Christ, His church. You know, He'd do that for you today. And we wish so much you would let God so bless your life. I'm pretty sure I speak for the Hobbs Street Church of Christ when I tell you it'd be a joy for the Lord to become your Savior today. Those of you that have been attending with your spouses that as yet have not let God add you to the church. Why don't you let the Lord bless you today? Why don't you bless your family? 
Why don't you bless this congregation by becoming a part of it? And if one time you knew that joy, you trusted the Lord, you believed it with all of your heart when you were baptized, and so there was joy in your soul, there was peace in your heart, there was hope of heaven in your life, and then the world came, tugging, pulling, snatching, and you got discouraged. You caved in. You gave in and you gave up. God didn't give up on you. He would welcome you back today to the fold with loving arms of mercy and forgiveness. But you have to repent of whatever's keeping you from living faithfully for Him. That you can do. It's not impossible. And you can come back with a determination as you confess your unfaithfulness and plead for God's forgiveness. You can come back home to joy and peace and fellowship in the body of Christ and the hope of eternal life in heaven in the sweet by and by. Now Brent has us a song. We're not going to sing it as a tradition. We're going to sing it as an exhortation. We'll take our hearts and our voices and we'll just try to encourage you through the words of this great old song to let God bless your life today. Shall we sing? Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.